Welcome to Emergency to Emergence, a podcast produced by Sterling College. I'm Nakasi Fortune. And I'm Dakota Lacroix. This podcast intends to engage in spirited, heart-centered dialogue about intersecting eco-social emergencies, featuring the voices and perspectives of people purposefully engaging in ecological thinking and action, while fostering active, community-engaged responses that offer hope. Joining us today is Teresa Snow. Teresa has worked in Vermont's agricultural sector for more than 20 years. She founded Salvation Farms in 2004, receiving both regional and national awards, including the Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibilities Young Changemaker Award. Teresa studied sustainable agriculture and natural resource management at Sterling College and has worked for a number of Vermont agricultural businesses like Pete's Greens and High Mowing Organic Seeds. In the work that she leads, Teresa has a steadfast conviction for the responsible stewardship and use of our natural resources, with a parallel dedication to the engagement of individuals across the socioeconomic spectrum. Teresa, thank you so much for taking a time out of your day um, to come have this conversation with us. And I know you're, you're joining us from downtown Marsville. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, Teresa, for being here. Definitely. You know, what inspired you to become ag- involved in agriculture in the way that you are? Well, I, um, I would say some of my earliest memories are eating raspberries in the backyard and, and peas from the family garden and chasing loose pigs around the yard and, um, <laughs> you know, helping what I thought was helping my grandparents hay on their da- dairy farm, but, you know, probably maybe being in the way, um, you know, so, you know, agriculture, um, you know, as I just said, are some of my earliest memories and I, um, feel really connected to both the environment here in Vermont and the working landscape and the idea of um, subsistence living and local living. Um, I think that there are basic essentials in our lives and they're really land-based. We need food and we need water um, and we need some form of shelter to stay warm or cool. And I think that that all lends itself to the foundation of culture, which is um, agriculture. We aren't really nomadic anymore. Um, so, so what does it mean to meet our basic needs? And, and I see that as, as agricultural. Your organization is called Salvation Farms. What's the origin of that? And what does salvation mean to you? Well, so Salvation Farms, the name really acknowledges that farms are, were, and always will be our salvation. Again, to my first answer, you know, we really aren't a nomadic people. And so that means to meet basic needs, uh, we need to uh, be working in uh, some sort of harmony with the natural environment to meet, again, our basic needs, essentially to, to eat. And, you know, without farms, at this point, we don't eat. And, you know, with, um, climate change and the instability in the global national supply chain. Um, we need to have local farms if we're going to uh, really meet you know, our, our basic need to eat. And what exactly does Salvation Farms do? 
So Salvation Farms has a, a little bit of a jargony, complex mission. Uh, <laughs> if I'm giving Sounds a, like life. Yes. If I'm giving a presentation, I usually talk for about 15 minutes before I share our mission to give context around it. But our mission is to build increased resilience in Vermont's food system through agricultural surplus management. Most people don't realize because we're so disconnected as a population from agriculture, um, that there's a lot of surplus that um, is generated when when food is produced. And uh, for, for varying reasons, that edible quality, uh, nutritious food remains on farms. Uh, and so what, what Salvation Farms is uh, working to do is look at how we can make a supply chain, you know, uh, let's say, um, cleaning and packing of food or processing of food or storing and transportation of food, um, looking at how we can address supply chain gaps or issues that shorten a supply chain. So the distance of where the food is produced to where it is consumed and the, and the amount of places where it could be consumed or eaten um, by actually looking at the surplus. If, if we say, okay, there's uh, surplus fluid milk, or there's cold dairy animals that uh, uh, you know is a valuable protein source, or there's a lot of fruit and vegetables that just aren't leaving the farm. So what do we need to address between the farm and the eater locally to actually get that food uh, to people? And if we look at this surplus, it's it, it most of it doesn't meet market specifications, which are can be pretty stringent. So that means that we need to uh, address issues of labor, um, address issues of you know mechanized processing, uh, and look at where we don't have infrastructure to literally move, uh, process, store, and then make available this food to local people. Teresa, I wonder, is there a moment in your life that you first witnessed this sense of dysfunction in the system? Can you recall any moments that kind of led you on this pathway or maybe relay some of these touchstones to our listeners? Uh, yes. You know, I think that it's like a, it, you know, life is a culmination of experiences and, and, and struggles and ahas. Um, when I, w I always like to say, you know, that my, my childhood or younger years, you know, was rooted in this agricultural kind of foundation, whether it was uh, parents that were doing small scale kind of homesteading uh, to my grandparents' dairy farm. And then I like to say, well, then I was a teenager uh, where I was really challenging a lot of things, but didn't know why I was challenging things. And I have to really applaud Sterling uh, College, uh, which is where I ended up choosing to go to college. Um, couple years after high school and it started to ground my challenging of things that I didn't understand but I didn't feel comfortable with um, in some foundation of understanding global exploitation and oppression of both the natural environment and people. So that was the first thing. But then after Sterling, which of course taught me a lot about um, you know, uh, relationship with your human and natural community and, and how to work in, in some harmony, 
but also in in a role of stewardship, but not being in dominance, like st- stewardship in more in more in a harmony kind of way. But after Sterling, I had um, enrolled in an AmeriCorps program. Actually, I had enrolled in this AmeriCorps program prior to graduating Sterling, and had been accepted as a member. It was an NCCC um, program where you essentially work with. Uh, team of peers. Uh, everyone was between 18 and 24 years of age. And this was in 2001. And I was set to go um, and serve based out of Washington, D.C. Um, and 9-11 happened. And I had no idea, well, am I still going to go to D.C. and serve? So I was in contact with AmeriCorps to find out what was the status. So it was about seven or nine days after um, that attack, I was on a plane flying to DC. um, uh, And then I was pulled aside probably a week before we were supposed to go and start our projects. And I was told that I and my team are gonna be sent to Manhattan to work with the Red Cross. to provide services to people impacted by the collapse of the World Trade Towers. So off we went. And again, this was about six, six or eight weeks after the initial attack. And we weren't at quote unquote ground zero. We were midtown and we were working in a very large uh, family assistance center. And my responsibilities with the Red Cross were to essentially serve as a caseworker for people who came in seeking support. And I worked with individuals who lost their homes, lost their jobs, and some individuals who lost family members in that tragedy. And I witnessed people who were in this place of complete hope, not hopelessness, but helplessness in the sense that they had um, invested in an economy that was rooted in a monetary economy. They had no home economy. They had no land-based economy. And therefore, this tragedy in the, the loss of home, family, or, um, or, in, or sorry, family members or jobs, the income from that um, left them without resources. And then here they are in, the, in this huge city. Um, where there there isn't a landscape that can generate subsistence for them. And uh, coming from Vermont, coming out of Sterling College, it was just, it was so clear that we as a culture are really unprepared to um, attend to or meet some of our most basic needs because we have bought into this dom- this dominating monetary economy. And Ironically, I was also exposed in this AmeriCorps period to this idea of gleaning, and um, which gleaning is going to farms, at least in modern times, is going to farms, harvesting what they're not going to sell, and making that available to the community, primarily to, to through charitable charitable food sites like food shelves. Um, and I didn't come home from AmeriCorps saying I'm going to do something about this. Um, I actually really struggled. Uh, for probably two years or more um, with 
I think, degrees of post-traumatic stress. Um, I would imagine there's an emotional toll that would take on you as well. Absolutely. And prior to that, um, you know, again, connected with Sterling College, I had learned about uh, biotechnology and genetic engineering and had done some activism around, you know, um, you know, not patenting life and the control of our seed supply and uh, really trying to challenge corporate control um, of the food supply. And so I was grappling with all of this that, again, we as people and we as communities, for some reason, have relinquished our agency to meet our basic needs. We've entrusted them in this other system. And I happened to be working um, at Pete's Greens at the time, like my third year of working at the farm there in Crassberry or Greensboro. And um, uh, Pete Johnson, the owner of the farm, really recognized that I was struggling and that I, and, and he had a conversation with me about, you know, well, what do you really want to do? He enjoyed having me as an employee, knew I worked hard and that I was proud of the work I did on the farm, but really recognized that I needed to contribute more to the world. And he just said, I have extra greens. Can you do anything with those? And, and then hence, you know, there was, there it was born. Oh, I could harvest your extra food and maybe I could engage Sterling College students to help me harvest it. And I could put that into the community and have people uh, fed with that food that um you, you know your that is that aren't your paying markets that you aren't reaching and that isn't going to compete directly with your markets so i can start to reconnect the community with local farms and engage people on a farm so that we can start to realize that farms are our salvation um and build more comfort and familiarity with what is local and seasonally acclimated here So, Teresa, it's clear that, you know, gleaning offers a bridge between farmers and community members. Can you speak more to those connections that are made um, between the farmers and the community members through the work that you do? So, well, Salvation Farms got its start in gleaning. The work we do goes far beyond that now while still incorporates gleaning. Um, but what gleaning offers is, and, and what I, f I feel and the organization believes is kind of the, the powerful element of, of gleaning, uh, is the experiential education component. So uh, gleaning happens with community members. Community members engage on the farm and they start um, having observations and questions about why is this food still here? Why isn't it making it to market? They start questioning things about the food system in a way that most eaters don't when they go to the supermarket and they prepare dinner or they go to a restaurant. They're, they're being exposed to a part of uh, a system that they engage in every single day, possibly multiple times in the day, but that they never see. And so, so if um, a volunteer you know, has driven by a farm most of their life, when they've actually stepped in onto the field or into the fields of this farm, you know, and engaged with different community members that they 
may not have ever engaged with. The, you know, now driving by the farm, they're always going to be reminded of that feeling in the field. And, and those questions that they have about, you know, this beautiful, edible, nutritious food remaining in this, in this field, you know, they're going to be reflecting on their own choices as, as eaters and as consumers. And they're going to start, and many do, um, looking to invest local or buying from that farm that they've worked with. Uh, we've measured behavior change in volunteers. Some, you know, start composting at home or try to reduce their food waste at home. But the other piece is that not not only is it the impact, uh, the experiential education impact for the volunteer in the field, but it's also that opportunity for those eaters who have um, access now to this food, whether it's someone going to the food shelf or senior housing site, they're given an opportunity that is financially risk-free to not just access something like a carrot, which is familiar, but to try kale or arugula or try kohlrabi. Um, and, and, and we believe that that opportunity and experience creates, again, more comfort and familiarity and impact. And it, and it helps the community feel more capable of eating what its local farms produce if they choose to consume that food or if they have to consume that food. If, if, if all of a sudden we don't have the option of the diversity of a global supply chain, we're building this familiarity through this work. Um, one, there's been a couple powerful moments uh, that I can recollect you know, delivering beet greens to a senior housing facility and being physically embraced by elder women who were so thankful to see beet greens come in um, because they hadn't had them since their childhood. And, you know, other volunteers um, love the story. A woman before going to church was in the field, probably in her 60s, uh, joined by a young man probably around 15, who was doing community service as part of restorative justice work. And to watch these two people um, engage in this, this really important community work and in conversations that they never would have, have ever had. Um, so that's, for us, we feel that the experiential education piece, the connecting community to each other, uh, that, that that's the real power of this work. And that's, that creates long-term change. While it is slow change, you know, that creates long-term change in agency in our community. Um, it creates social networks that create more stability in our communities. And, and this work also creates short-term impact by making, you know, good use of local resources to help people meet their nutritional needs today. Can you share maybe something about the food system that you've seen and witnessed that like somebody like myself or some of our listeners who might not have any idea of why this work is needed? So there's there's been a lot of research, uh, I would say, in the last half dozen years around the issue of uh, both food waste and what we consider food loss uh, happening in the U.S., 
And the work that Salvation Farms does really focuses on what we call food loss on farms. It's the uh, edible quality food that is not harvested or it's harvested, but it's not donated and sold. And a lot of people don't realize that this is a reality in our in our agricultural system, our agricultural and food system. In 2016, we did um, the first statewide study in the nation uh, here in Vermont to try to figure oh, wow. out how how much edible food was remaining on Vermont farms each year. And um, we surveyed farmers, and based on farmer estimates compared with census data, uh, we uncovered that approximately 14.3 million pounds of edible vegetables and berries remain on the state's farms each year. Now that doesn't include tree fruit because we had no orchards answer the survey, so that number could be much higher. So the reason that uh, food loss on farms occurs, uh, particularly with fruits and vegetables, is um, the again, product doesn't always meet market specifications. Uh, and for for farmers, everything is economical. If they don't have enough labor or they don't have affordable labor, or if they aren't confident that they have a market for said crop, they're just not going to harvest it. Farmers often produce enough to make sure that they can meet all of their markets. So that means they often produce a little extra that's insurance for them. And, you know, if anybody's gardened, they've seen that, you know, some zucchini is perfectly straight and some is crooked. Some, you know, carrots come out, you know, different shaped as well. And so there's a lot of edible food that doesn't necessarily make it into the marketplace, doesn't necessarily make it to processors um, because we all want this perceived idea of perfection. And because processing uh, is often mechanized, uh, it cannot accommodate things that are uh, inconsistent in shape and size. So again, there's a lot more reasons, but it does have a lot to do with the marketplace and economics, why a farmer might leave some food in the field or they might harvest but not be able to find an outlet for that food. And Teresa, can you speak to some of the the challenges that you face um, or that Salvation Farms face while you're doing this work? Yeah, I think that uh, as a nonprofit with a pretty innovative uh, mission, uh, we're often misunderstood because of the complexities of our mission and approach. People can understand gleaning, and it f it's such a feel-good thing. But when you start talking about supply chain and labor and the need for uh, processing and or workforce development or market alternative development, it's it just it's just a degree of complication that people tend not to think about. And with it being a nonprofit, expect that you you know have somewhat of a narrow scope. You know, you just do this. You don't think about um, the system as a whole necessarily and all of the levers that you can pull. If if surplus food is the thing, but what we want to do is not necessarily just serve um, a perceived vulnerable population today, but we want to address the fact that we as a whole are vulnerable uh, to the instability of global supply chains. Uh, that's really big, and 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 particularly in a funding sphere where um, you need to have impact on a yearly basis. Uh, you can't create systems change in a year. 
Uh, and so that has been some of our biggest challenge as how does this organization move from something that's very marketable, like gleaning, which is often very rooted in charity, as opposed to creating large, large and long-term systemic and social change through experiential education and developing infrastructure, uh, able workforce, et cetera, to actually increase the state's ability to use food that's here to feed ourselves and not just do this in a way that Salvation Farms becomes an Uber organization, but that we're actually leveraging and con connecting supply chain or different unique players uh, so that it's really interconnected and that we use this as a model for other areas of the state. We can provide our expertise for those other areas of the state and then they can connect regionally, but then also act as a model nationally. You know, surplus food is not um, an anomaly to Vermont in any way. Uh, this is happening anywhere food is being produced. Since you've started this work, um, you know, with Salvation Farms and even before with AmeriCorps, have you seen um, an increase or decrease in the amount of surplus foods that there are? I think that's a really hard question to answer because honestly, nobody really knows how much is out there. Um, Farmers don't track what they don't sell. Yeah, so Salvation Farms is interesting in uh, doing another much larger food loss on farms research project. I would like for it to be multi-year because um, there's different market and season realities year to year. Um, so uh, to actually capture the reality that's happening on farms and the variability, again, year to year, it would be important to look at these things. Uh, for multiple years. And we're also interested in collecting data in multiple ways uh, so that we could really get a clearer picture of you know, what's left in the field versus what's uh, har harvested but not sold. Um, and, and what are some of the um, conditioner cosmetic issues, particularly with the food that is harvested but not sold? This would really let Vermont know what is needed in a supply chain sense. Uh, for example, if we know that uh, typically in a particular region within a certain set of time, there's a lot of sweet corn and that uh, this other region won't have sweet corn for another three weeks, well, then we can be more prepared to move it to that region. Or if we know that typically these are the months that farmers are harvesting winter squash and that there's X tonnage of winter squash that just can't go to market in its whole raw form, then we can start to say, well, then we need to uh, have infrastructure to puree this winter squash and let's actually find a way to put it into cans because that's a shelf-stable product, which then decreases the vulnerability of the supply chain and doesn't demand more energy inputs by creating a, a, a short-term shelf-stable product like frozen foods. So this, this research can really inform how prepared we want to be or can we be to feed ourselves with what our farms produce. I know that after launching, you know, the Vermont Gleaning Collective, 
a number of independent gleaning programs in Vermont. Um, Salvation Farms developed, I think, a web application to support uh, the collective effort. Can you tell us more about, you know, how technology has either aided or complicated your the work that you're doing? Yeah, that's a surprising question, and thank you. Uh, I one didn't anticipate being a social entrepreneur, <laughs> nor did I anticipate being a, a website developer. But uh, the opportunity presented itself in uh, early 2012 to present a potential IT solution at a random hacks of kindness event, and I said, "Well." With Salvation Farms' interest in creating a statewide network of gleaners, it would be great if there was a platform that could streamline volunteer registration for uh, interested community members anywhere in the state so that they can just register in one location. And then what this platform does is it allows the members of the Vermont Gleaning Collective, those gleaning organizations that are in specific regions around Vermont, uh, to to post gleans. And based on the volunteer's registration, if they want to glean in a particular county, they get notified if the farm in which the glean is happening on is in the county that they selected that they wanted to glean in. And they can pick multiple counties. So we no longer have community members working in allegiance to a particular organization, but it's rather in allegiance to this idea. And yes, they'll likely be working a lot with one organization, but they might also be exposed to three. But this platform also allows for the aggregation of data so that no matter what organization is gleaning, uh, all of the information is being tracked in the same way. So we can see uh, what crops are being collected, at what volumes, from what regions in the state, what time period, and what collection method. Is it a, is it? Oh, that's yes. Yeah, so we can actually, that's some of the data. Like that's really powerful. That lets us know that last year, only 36% of what the Vermont Gleaning Collective gleaned actually was field gleaned. The other was already picked by the farmer. And that tells us a lot as a state of, well, what's going on in the marketplace that these farmers can't sell this food that they've already picked. And I think that people have um, undervalued the knowledge that gleaners have both about farms and agriculture, but also about community needs and how food can move and short supply chains. And they should be central to any relocalization, reliable local food conversations and resilience. And Teresa, would you tell us more about some of the projects and inspirations and actionable things that you and Salvation Farms are doing beyond gleaning? Sure. So uh, research is one. We've done a, a handful of research around food loss on farms, uh, demand for local produce, uh, what are the barriers to institutions and charitable food sites using local food, um, how can we displace it importing food uh, that we could replace with local food, whether maybe it's processed food. We've done uh, several minimal processing projects and programs where we're taking surplus and uh, with volunteers or workforce development participants um, making a frozen food product. Um, we've done some large-scale uh, surplus crop uh, food hub work where we've been aggregating tons of uh, 
harder crops like apples and winter squash and potatoes and carrots, uh, cleaning and packing those and making those available in larger uh, volumes, but in smaller pack sizes so that they're easier to inventory and distribute. And that would be in service mostly to the charitable food system, but possibly also into institutions like hospitals and schools and prisons. Uh, we have worked with, um, in workforce development, uh, we did some work in one of our state's prisons for several years working uh, with an inmate population where we provided them a working and learning opportunity to kind of pilot this idea of if there was a labor force, um, could we could we Vermont manage the volume of surplus that we have? Or, or what is the infrastructure and labor that we do need? And can we do it in a dignifying way that provides the laborers um, added skills and experience? We've also done this through workforce development in our surplus crop food hub that we were operating in Winooski. Uh, working with individuals with barriers to employment. So there's a lot of things, a lot of, and again, systems thinking, there's a lot of levers that we can pull by using agricultural surplus, both to address uh, supply chain issues, also labor force needs, um, purposeful work. Uh, and we can do this in a way that uh, local farmers can feed more local people. I wonder, how did you discover the value of community and how is it influencing your current aspirations and Salvation Farms' current aspirations? Oh, that's a, such a wonderful question. Because um, I feel I've described myself as like an outer electron that jumps from like atom to atom. Um, and so I think being someone who has that adaptability um, there's appreciation in community and that it takes all types and it's really appealing to be able to work with and engage and appreciate all types. And that, that really is community. But the other thing is that, you know, organizations don't make change. People make change. And if Salvation Farms, I've often described, uh, could be the rock that hits the pond and and it is that ripple effect that actually creates the change. Like that's the community, that's the people, that's the experiential education, and that's the inspiration and ahas that we hope uh, to provide and, and share. And or there's a quote that's really inspired me, and it, it it goes, "If if you have come to help me, then you are wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound with mine, then let us work together." And I think that really embodies uh, community and the fact that looking at short-term versus long-term, that yes, we can do good for people who are struggling today, but if we can't realize that their struggle is all of our struggles, then we're actually not creating any long-term change. Teresa, thank you again for taking time out of your day uh, to join us and talk to us about uh, the work that Salvation Farms is doing and just how incredibly important it is and the connections yeah. and the community that you're building um, with, with Gleaning and, and all of the other parts of this wonderful organization. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you, Teresa. Truly inspiring all of the different levels in which you're engaging with this work. Thank you so much for being with yeah, us. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure.
If you enjoyed this conversation, do come back for the commendation. We'll spend a few more minutes with our most recent guest, identifying the specific works that inspire them so you can root further, draw new sources of nourishment, and connect to the emergence of vital possibilities. And before we come to a close, Sterling acknowledges that the land on which we gather, places now known as Vermont and Kentucky, are the traditional and unceded territories of several indigenous peoples, the Abenaki in the north and the Shawnee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Osage people to the south. We also learn in and from a range of landscapes that belong to other indigenous peoples in more than human kin. As we seek deep reciprocal relationships with nature, we respect and honor the place-based and cultural wisdom of indigenous ancestors and contemporaries. Words of acknowledgement and intention are just the first step. We must match them with acts of respect and repair. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to Emergency to Emergence wherever you listen to podcasts. And a very special thanks to Sterling alum Fern Maddy for her musical creations. For more information on how Sterling is advancing ecological thinking and action, visit www.sterlingcollege.edu. If listening has prompted something new to emerge in you, we invite you to share your thoughts as a written message or voice recording, which you can send to podcast at sterlingcollege.edu. Until next time, this is Emergency to Emergence.